Let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel, chapter 24 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and uh, you are without a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, they'll put one into your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. When we come to chapter 24, we, chapter 24 contains the final two uh, parables of Ezekiel's ministry and uh, a life that was uh, a ministry that was very much filled with parables and kind of living uh, out demonstrations. And, and uh, the first one is the parable of the boiling pot. And he writes again in the ninth year, uh, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord uh, came to me. And uh, the, he's very specific in giving us the date and the timing of the parable. Uh, the date is given to us because, uh, as he says here in verse 2, Son of man, write down the name of the day. This very day the king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. And this is the ultimate, his final siege in which he is going to uh, uh, conquer Jerusalem for a third and final time. Uh, the only way that Ezekiel could have known this being some 450 miles away in the city of Babylon, the outskirts of it was by divine revelation. And uh, it's as if the Lord was saying, he's saying, write this down, it's going to be confirmed later. And so it was. And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, uh, thus says the Lord God, put on a pot, and uh, picture a big, big kettle that you'd put massive amount of stew in for like lumberjacks or something. Uh, put on a pot and uh, set it on and uh, a fire. And you shall also put water into it and gather pieces of meat uh, in it and uh, every good piece. You remember that the, re the inhabitants of Jerusalem considered themselves for all of their sin uh, to be better than all of the Jews that had been taken captive in the previous two captivities in which uh, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem twice previously. They considered themselves to be the choice ones that uh, more spiritual. This was the reason they'd been left behind. Their assessment of themselves was that they were uh, the choice cuts of Israel. He said, take the choice, uh, <clears throat> the choice of the flock, also pile fuel, fuel bones under it and make it boil well. And so when they didn't have uh, wood, they would use uh, dried out bones for fuel. When uh, God declares that uh, all of this meat is to be put in the pot, the water is to be put in the pot, the, the fire is uh, to, to be uh, put under it and make it boil well, speaking of the intensity of the flame uh, on the outside of the pot, and let the, sim the cuts simmer uh, within it. And therefore, uh, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. And so the pot represents Jerusalem, and the people were um, comforting themselves in the fact that uh, God would never let anything happen to Jerusalem. He would never let anything happen to the temple. We're safe as long as we're in Jerusalem. And uh, despite what the prophets were telling them, God was going to judge Jerusalem because of the sins of the people. From top to bottom, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the common people, 
And uh, so that is the pot, and Babylon and its army is going to be the fire coming uh, to, uh, to uh, judge Jerusalem. Woe to the bloody city. He doesn't call it Jerusalem. He doesn't call it, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the house of peace, anything. Now it's just a bloody city. Uh, to the pot, again, speaking of Jerusalem, whose scum is in it and whose scum is not gone from it. Speaking about their sin, their wickedness, their idolatry. And this is how he, what Jerusalem uh, looked like to uh, God at this point, particular point in time. And bring it out piece by piece on which no lot has fallen. And so uh, the, the pieces of the meat that are in the pot and being pulled out now as it's boiling, uh, it's being pulled out indiscriminately in the same way that the inhabitants of Jerusalem would be, uh, that survived the battle, would be pulled out by Nebuchadnezzar and then sent to the various parts uh, of his kingdom. And uh, for, and here is the reason for uh, this judgment, for her blood is in her midst and she set it on top of a rock and she did not pour it on the ground to cover it uh, with dust. And so Jerusalem was filled not only with idolatry, wickedness against God, but uh, tremendous violence uh, and bloodshed within the city. Uh, they were killing their children, offering them to uh, the false god Molech. Uh, they were killing the righteous and persecuting the righteous. People were being killed uh, simply to get their money, uh, uh, you know, laws and that, that kind of uh, right dealing with people. It might made right at this particular point. And, and uh, you could be killed for being rich in order to get your riches or to be testified against in a court of law and in order for you to be killed and somebody else get what you owned. And so the bloodshed that was going on in the city and, it, and it, it may, that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock that it may not be covered. In other words, you have made Jerusalem, the city that I gave to you, uh, the capital of the land that I gave to you. Uh, you have uh, shed innocent blood. You have made it a place of blood. And now I will do to you exactly what you have done uh, to others. Uh, I will shed your blood uh, in, in that uh, same place as, as well. And uh, thus says the Lord, verse 9, the Lord God, therefore thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. Uh, I too will make a, uh, the pyre great, or the great fire that is underneath uh, the, the pot of Jerusalem, speaking of, of the judgment that God would bring upon uh, Jerusalem for her sin. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, uh, cook the meat well, and mix in the spices, and let the cuts be burned up. And then after all that has happened, the, 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 the meat that has been put into the pot, after it's been pulled out, and now the, the, there's just going to be the burning up of the water and, uh, and the purifying of the pot itself. Then set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot and its bronze may uh, burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. And so maybe you've uh, had something that 
so here you have this great pot that's being burned into, until it becomes like white hot almost as much as it can be, and it's burning off all of the scum that is left in the inside, and that is the God's judgment upon the city in order to burn away all of the sin and wickedness that was in the city. If you've ever had anything that, uh, you know, you considered uh, valuable or uh, you didn't quite want to throw away and get rid of, but, you know, something disgusting has died in it or something has defiled it, you know, and uh, all the things that we can do with, you know, trying to uh, disinfect it or heat it up, uh, you know, in an attempt to get rid of that that defilement and God is doing that with the city through the judgment and she has grown weary with lies and her great scum has not uh, gone from her God called her to repent repeatedly 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 Uh, she was unwilling to repent of her sin and let her scum be in the fire God said I'm going to this is the only way it could be removed was judgment and a strong judgment. And in your filthiness is lewdness, because I have cleansed you, and you are not cleansed. And you will uh, not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest on you. God had done everything that he could. Jeremiah had been prophesying to the uh, Jerusalem for fully 40 years and maybe as long as 50 years to them. God had sent multiple prophets to them, and they were unwilling to turn back uh, from their sin. And again, we make mention of the fact this was not the Edomites, this was not the Philistines, this was not the Moabites or the Ammonites. Uh, These were not pagans, these were not Philistines. These were God's people, and God was forced to judge them uh, and chasten them in this way. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and it shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, uh, they will judge you, uh, says the Lord. And so this was the, the purging. This was the only way that he could remove all of the idolatry and the sin that was practiced. And so uh, thoroughly, so now entrenched in the culture, And God looks and says, there's only one way. You know, sometimes a nation will go so bad just on a secular level that the only hope for it is a revolution somewhere down the line. And, uh, and, and God looked at them and said, this is so bad, it's so now systemic what, what, what is here. They've made such a mess of things now, committing these sins in my name or, or committing them and going to my house and, and the temple and worshiping me on the same day that they're sacrificing their children in another field in, in Jerusalem. And he said, the, the only thing they'll understand is a judgment or a chastening uh, this severe. And it, and it turned out to be the case. There is a, a happy ending to all of this, though it's a hard path for the happy ending. And uh, they, they did turn. Uh, again, as we've mentioned before, uh, the Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, uh, that was idolatry central in the ancient world. So God says, all right, you like idols, you think that's the way to go, and, it's, and then I'm such a bore and such a square to walk with and, and to live for. Uh, go to the land of idolatry, see what kind of a human being it produces, see what kind of a culture it produces in comparison to what you had and you threw away, and you'll come back to me. And uh, sure enough, they did. The second parable is the sign of the death of 
Ezekiel, and uh, the Lord, uh, also the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. And the desire of his eyes refers uh, to his wife. It certainly says something uh, to us about Ezekiel. It says something to us about his wife. We don't know her name. This is all we know about her. Uh, but that, that were the, the singular uh, desire of your eyes. She was, I mean, imagine here he is. He's in the priestly lineage, hoping one day to be a priest in Jerusalem. All of that law is lost. Now he's a captive in, in Tel Aviv, in, in Babylon. And uh, his wife is, is with him in, in all of this. And now, uh, and, and the one desire, the one great thing other than the Lord that he had in his life uh, was his, his, uh, his wife. What's the old saying behind every great man, there's a great woman or a greater woman? That's probably how women put it. Uh, and I don't doubt it at all, by the way. I, I listen to my Helen Reddy songs all the time. <laughs> Uh, and uh, keeps me in line. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, even as we unpack this just a little bit in a moment, uh, it is interesting to, uh, to realize how true that is. I was talking with a pastor yesterday, and, um, and he and his wife have served the Lord for so many decades, I don't know, maybe 60 years, something and been all over the world. She has uh, supported him in their ministry and just quietly, he could have never done in, remotely anything that he did without uh, her. And so there's the truth of it and uh, always the case and certainly in this uh, marriage. So whatever, you know, whatever Ezekiel lost in terms of going into captivity to Babylon and, and all of those things and they were, uh, significant. Uh, nobody is um, uh, poor uh, who is able to describe their wife or their husband as the desire uh, of their eyes. What a remarkable woman she must have been uh, to, uh, to love this man, to uh, be his helpmeet, so to speak, and then also to go through uh, all of the ups and downs every bit as much as, as he did. There was a wife in the midst of all of that uh, too. And when God declares uh, to Ezekiel here that he's going to take away uh, the desire of his eyes with one stroke, uh, he, Ezekiel is essentially informed of uh, the coming death of his wife. And, uh, and then he's told, as we go a bit further, yet you shall uh, neither mourn nor weep. You shall, you, when she dies, you're not to show any customary uh, 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 signs of mourning for her. Uh, you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. All of the natural things that would happen, especially in the Middle Eastern uh, culture. Uh, sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Uh, bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. And do not cover your lips and uh, do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So he wasn't to show any signs of mourning related to her death. And uh, I do think uh, personally there'd be a mistake to conclude that God took her life uh, solely for the purpose of communicating something to uh, the children of Israel. I mean, God is not in the habit of taking the lives of innocent people in that way. Uh, it seems to me best to understand that uh, God in His omniscience, that He knows everything 
uh, knowing that Ezekiel's wife would die, was about to die suddenly, to die unexpectedly, then use that event now uh, to communicate to the children of Israel what uh, couldn't uh, be communicated in, in quite as powerful uh, a way. And uh, so he was, uh, he, he, uh, he, so I spoke to the people in the morning, verse 18, uh, told them everything. My wife is uh, going to die. This is what the Lord is, you know, he prophesied that this was going to happen. And then at evening, my wife died. And the next morning, I did as I was commanded. I put on my turban. I put on my sandals. I didn't uh, weep. I didn't do all the traditional Middle Eastern, uh, you know, the uh, 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 kind of uh, marks of, of uh, mourning, and uh, it had exactly the effect upon the people that God knew it would. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things signify that you behave so? Uh, what it, they knew enough about him now that it was everything related to his life was like a message from God. So it was like, all right, your wife has died, and you're acting so bizarrely compared to our culture in terms of uh, a failure to show grief. Uh, what in the world is, is behind your uh, behavior? What does this signify? And then I answered them, the word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary. Uh, speaking about uh, Jerusalem and the temple there, your arrogant boast. And, and now really he's speaking to the Jews, in essence, the Jews are, who are in Jerusalem. Uh, the temple was their arrogant boast in, in that they said, God will never judge us no matter how sinful we become, no matter how much idolatry, no matter how much Ezekiel prophesies. No matter how much uh, Jeremiah prophesies, God will never ever allow pagans to take control of that, uh, that temple. And so it was their boast. As long as the temple was like a, 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 a rabbit's foot is a good luck uh, charm. A lot of good it did the rabbit, by the way. But, uh, and, but that was the arrogant boast that God won't do that. The temple being the desire of your eyes and the delight of your soul and your sons and your daughters uh, whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And so Ezekiel is saying to the people in Tel Aviv, but also speaking about the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, that what is about to happen to you at the hands of the Babylonians is exactly what happened to me. I've had this great loss within my life of my wife and unable to mourn for her in a customary way. And when Jerusalem falls, and not only do you lose the temple that's so uh, it, it, traditionally dear to you, and you lose your children, but you will not have the opportunity to mourn because they will take you into captivity and start spreading you out through uh, the Babylonian Empire. And your turbans shall be on your heads and your sandals uh, on your feet. You shall neither mourn, uh, verse 22, and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your head and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you according uh, to all that he has done. 
you shall do, and when he comes, you shall know that I am the Lord uh, God. And so, uh, and, and then you, and you, son of man, will it not be in the day that I take away, uh, take them from their stronghold, their joy and their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that, uh, and that on which they uh, set their minds, their sons and their daughters, that on that day uh, one who escapes will come to you and let you hear it with your ears. On that day your mouth will be opened uh, to him who has escaped to bring the news to you from Jerusalem of the fall of Jerusalem. Once this messenger comes, your mouth will be opened up uh, to him who has escaped. You'll be able to speak to him in a way that you haven't for these long years, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. Uh, thus you shall be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am uh, the Lord. And so you might remember when the Lord had commissioned Ezekiel back in uh, chapter 3 that God had put a restriction on Ezekiel's speech, and uh, he could only talk when God prompted him to speak prophetically. And, and so his speech was completely set aside or sanctified uh, to the Lord, and he was told that it would remain such. He couldn't talk about uh, the Golden State Warriors. He couldn't talk about the stock market. He couldn't talk about the upcoming election. He couldn't talk about anything. Uh, his mouth, in terms of, certainly in terms of public, was completely set aside. He was either speaking for God or he wasn't speaking. God took it completely uh, to himself, and God told him that it will be this way uh, until uh, the date that a messenger comes from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv and uh, to report the fall of the city uh, of Babylon. And so once the prophecies were fulfilled, and the messenger came, delivered the message, Ezekiel's speech returned to normal. He could speak uh, to people something other than God's prophecies. And this event occurs, uh, the, the recording uh, record of it uh, occurs in chapter 33. We'll get to that uh, in the future. But, um, the, but before we get into that, uh, Ezekiel's going to speak to prophesy concerning the Gentile nations surrounding uh, Judah. It is important to realize and, and, you know, to attempt in some way in kind of the prosperity and, and even the softness and materialism of, of our culture um, to look at the hardship that Ezekiel went through, the sacrifice that was involved, and to realize that he's not just, he's not a name on, on, on the, the pages of a book and not even not just merely a name on the pages of the Bible. He is a real life human being. He experienced all of these things, all of this hardship, all of this sacrifice in order to be faithful to what God had uh, called him uh, to. And his life was closely watched. Uh, as the old uh, saying goes, our lives, uh, 20, all, all the time, our lives as Christians are sermons. They're being preached all the time, and our lives are being watched as Christians, and never are they being watched more closely than when we go through hardship. And, uh, and here is Ezekiel, that uh, faithful to the Lord in all of that, that hardship. And it's certainly when you look at Ezekiel and uh, even Ezekiel himself for all the hardship that he faced was as everyone in human history is second to Jesus himself. And when we look at uh, his life, we look at Ezekiel, it certainly 
uh, would silence any kind of complaining or moaning or groaning that any of us might have in terms of hardship related to uh, the uh, hardship and loss that's involved in our being faithful to the Lord and His call upon our lives. And so Ezekiel, he steadied on uh, through all of it, and uh, we're to do the same thing. Now, when he gets into chapters 25 to 32, uh, these chapters all describe prophecies that uh, God gave against the nations that surrounded uh, the nation of Israel. And uh, so he speaks of, of judging them for their sins and for their wickedness. I think that um, just because God judged the sins of Judah uh, because they were his people, uh, these other nations, they didn't worship the Lord, uh, that didn't mean that he wouldn't hold them accountable for the wickedness that they were uh, committing. Sometimes, I think most of us have spent some part of our life where we were, didn't walk with the Lord, and now we get saved and we are walking with the Lord, and how carefully uh, the unsaved world is to watch the life of a Christian. And so often they will watch with kind of a critical eye every time we make a mistake or flub or sin or whatever. They, they notice it immediately. And, and the, the great deception that sometimes occurs in the person who's not yet a Christian is that they think that that sin is only uh, terrible because it's happened in, in the life of a Christian. And they don't realize that uh, sin is wrong in anybody's life. Uh, God holds us to a high standard as Christians. But what he commands in his book, in the Bible, uh, is not something in terms of definitions of right and wrong and obedience and disobedience. Those are not just standards for Christians or God's people, uh, but they apply to the whole world. And just because a person isn't a Christian, doesn't even believe in uh, God or believe in the God of the Bible, doesn't make uh, any difference at all in God's eyes in terms of being responsible for practicing uh, those same sins uh, themselves. And so uh, they saw the sins that Israel, Judah was uh, involving themselves in, and uh, they took note of that, but they practiced all of those sins as well. But somehow God was only going to judge his people and wouldn't have a problem with them. But ultimately everyone's accountable to God, whether they believe in his existence or not. Not. And, and a total of seven nations are addressed here. And he begins with his judgment against Ammon. The, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. So you got, you've got against and against here a little bit. So it's, we've got an idea that this isn't going to be so great for the Ammonites. And say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because... And uh, you can circle that word, at least in your mind. Here's the reason for God's judgment upon them. This is what uh, upset God related to them as a people. Uh, it, it, because you say, aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned and against the land of Israel when it was desolate and against the house of Judah uh, when they went into captivity. Indeed, uh, therefore, he said, uh, I will, well, let's go down, in, down to verse 6. And for thus says the Lord God, because, and so here's another reason for their judgment, you clapped your hands, you uh, stamped your feet and rejoiced uh, in heart with all your disdain for the land of Israel. 
the Ammonites, you might remember, were descendants of uh, Abraham's nephew Lot. And he, the Ammonites were conceived as a result of that intimate relationship between Lot and his two daughters following their uh, flight from the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. So uh, the Ammonites were kind of distant cousins. They were related uh, to, uh, to the Jewish people. And uh, despite uh, this distant kind of relationship, uh, the Ammonites were, uh, for the most part, very, very bitter enemies of uh, the Jewish people. And so Ammon lay uh, to the east of Israel, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, and what we know is, is the country of Jordan today. Their sin, is, is, is Ezekiel confronts them with it there in verse 3, is that they rejoiced in the destruction of Judah by the Babylon, Babylonians. And, uh, and so when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, uh, they went in, they profaned the temple of Jerusalem that, that they didn't consider that to be holy at all, went in there and, uh, and not only profaned the temple, but uh, engaged in the, the wholesale enslavement of, of Judah. And so when all of this was happening, the Ammonites were on the sideline and they were saying, aha, and uh, they were verbally mocking and jeering uh, the Jews in this uh, time of, of great calamity. And uh, uh, remember, uh, in, as we looked previously, when Nebuchadnezzar was on his way to invade uh, either Ammon or Jerusalem, uh, and, uh, and the Lord directed him toward Jerusalem. So Ammon isn't, isn't just... Uh, you know, excited about the fact that, oh, they got wiped out, but we didn't. Uh, but uh, they, uh, they had a disdain, as we see there in verse 6, uh, for the land and for uh, the people of Israel. In verse 6, out of that disdain for the land of Israel, they rejoiced over her judgment, uh, both inwardly, and they just couldn't even contain it outwardly. Sometimes you'll see the Palestinians do that today when uh, some uh, bus bombing in Jerusalem or something like this, and they get so excited and they clap and they hand out candy and, and, and have a festival over it. Uh, this, if you ever, when, uh, hopefully there won't be any more of that, but I, I'm not certain of it at all. But if you ever see that on TV, you re realize exactly what uh, God will bring down on people uh, that re rejoice in that, that kind of a way. And so the Lord said that He would judge them, verse 4, indeed I will Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east. In other words, I, the first judgment is that they're going to be uh, conquered by Babylon. Babylon lay to the east. You think they've just come here to wipe out Judah and Jerusalem? No, you're on the menu too, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, and they, uh, they shall set their encampments about you and make their dwellings among you. Uh, and they shall eat your fruit and they shall uh, drink your milk. They're going to co uh, conquer your land and, and, uh, and take all of it as a spoil. And I uh, shall make uh, Rabbah, 
their capital, Rabba, would be destroyed. It'll become a stable for donkeys. That's how complete the destruction will be. Uh, Ammon, which was the previous uh, uh, capital of the Ammonites at this time in their history, will become a resting place for flocks. Again, the destruction will devastate even the largest and most prosperous cities. And then you shall know that I am uh, the Lord. And all of this, uh, and then verse 7, and indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples, and I will cause, uh, I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And uh, the final prophecy that he gave in terms of the destruction of Ammon and the Ammonites is that uh, Ammon would cease to exist once uh, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, conquered them and, and plundered, uh, uh, plundered them, that they, that they would be uh, destroyed. And uh, so it happened. I mean, you look and I don't know when you've run into an Ammonite uh, recently, uh, but the Ammonites ceased to exist upon the conquest of, the, of, of Babylon over their land at this time in history, exactly as God had prophesied uh, would come to, pay, come to pass. And uh, it's one of the interesting things. That I think there's something like, I'm probably conservative on it, but at least a third uh, and maybe even two-thirds, I don't know, but conservatively a third of the Bible was written as prophecy. Uh, where God speaks of events that are going to come uh, to pass and uh, before they do come to pass. And the fulfillment of biblical prophecy is a testimony to uh, divine inspiration of the Word of God. You might remember when God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and he declared concerning the idols that the people were worshiping. And he said, have these idols declare to you the former things, how we got here, creation. Um, why are we the way that we are, sinners? Uh, tell, uh, tell, have them tell about uh, the origin of man, the origin of the universe. And then he said, and have them speak to us about things that are going to come to pass before they come to pass. Uh, and then he made, uh, said that we might know that they are God's. And, uh, and as God says, don't ever trust any God or any book or anyone that's claiming to be God or being divine uh, that cannot speak of the future ahead of time. And then those prophecies are fulfilled, uh, not 50% of the time or 25% of the time, but 100% of the time. And the Bible is unique in human history in that way. I think you know, sometimes we just, as Christians, after you walk with them for a long time, you know, that ceases to have kind of its impact almost. We're just so used to the prophecies and, and they were fulfilled and, and God uh, did exactly what He said. And, and to realize there's nothing like this in the whole world. Only God uh, could do what He's even done in even a handful of prophecies, let alone when a third to half of the book is, is, uh, takes the form of prophecy. There's certainly a lesson that we want to learn from the Ammonites, and it's a very, very practical one here, and, uh, and, and that is that if we rejoice in or we gloat over the disaster uh, that comes upon other people, uh, or if we even gloat over uh, and, and rejoice in God's chastening 
of someone who is deserving of that chastening. That's not our business. That's not something for us to gloat over and, and to celebrate. Uh, that to realize that this is something that displeases the Lord and it can result in an even greater judgment than coming upon us. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 5, uh, he who is glad of, at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 24, verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn his wrath away from him. There's been times in in my uh, Christian life where I've seen a judgment come upon a person or God's chastening, deep chastening, come upon another person. And there's that temptation in the flesh to go where the Ammonites went and go, aha, I was right about them all along. And, uh, and, but, it, it, but when you realize, if you go there, God may leave off of them and then bring His judgment on you. And you say, no, thank you for that. And, uh, and it, it keeps us on the straight and narrow in that regard. Uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, Proverbs 21, verse 24, a proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, and he acts with arrogant pride. And so this kind of scoffing at at God's judgment or his uh, uh, chastening of another person is always a sign of arrogance and pride in in our own life, and we're not to do it. Of course, Jesus told us that um, we're to love our enemies, and we're to do good to them, and we're not to uh, repay evil for evil. And so, uh, this, is, uh, this is something we want to steer uh, clear of, but it's very much a part of our flesh. We like to, uh, to see these things and, and to, to celebrate sometimes in a way that dishonors the Lord and uh, misrepresents Him in our life. And thus says the Lord, because Moab... Uh, and seer say, look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. And so uh, the Moabites, they were also descendants of the, old, uh, of the older daughter of Lot out of the kind of same circumstances as, as her younger sister. So they were distantly related to the Jews as well. And Moab's sin, as we see it here in verse um, Verse 8 there is that they declared, uh, look, the house of Judah is like all of the nations. In other words, they were mocking the Jews' claims to be God's chosen people. And, uh, and, and, that, uh, and, and uh, in essence, declaring that the God of the Jews is no more powerful than any other God, and obviously much less powerful than the gods of the Babylonians, because the God of the Jews couldn't protect uh, the Jews against the, the Babylonians. And what they didn't realize is that this defeat of Judah wasn't the result of some lack of power on God's part at all, but rather it was His very doing. Uh, he was the one that was behind uh, all of it. And so this, uh, this mocking and this scorn 
and the judgment. You've got the because in verse 8, and then the therefore, the judgment in verse 9. Therefore, uh, behold, uh, I will clear the territory of Moab of cities, of the cities on its uh, frontier, uh, the glory of the country, Beth uh, Jeshemoth, Baal Mion, and Kirjath Haim. And to the people of the east, I will give it as a possession uh, uh, together with the Ammonites. They'll be destroyed by Babylon as well, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab, and then they shall know that I am uh, the Lord. And so... All of this would bring them, uh, they'd have the same fate as the Ammonites, and it would bring them to the knowledge uh, that all of the wrong conclusions that they had come to, not only concerning the Jews, as bad as that was, but about uh, the God of the Jews, it would be cleared up when they were judged uh, as well. And that prophecy came to pass exactly as God declared it would. And thus says the Lord God, uh, because of what Edom, so here's the third nation now uh, that, that uh, bordered uh, Israel, and uh, God declares His judgment upon. And uh, thus says the Lord God, behold, uh, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and is greatly offended by avenging itself uh, on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand uh, against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, make it desolate from uh, Taman. Dedan shall fall by the sword. Uh, Taman was up in the north. Dedan was in the south. Devastation would, would uh, Babylon would bring devastation on the length of the land, God was saying. And I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people, uh, Israel, that they may uh, do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and that they may know my vengeance, says the Lord God. And so the Edomites, they use the opportunity. Here is God coming in. He's judging Judah, and He's judging uh, Jerusalem, and they use that as an opportunity to now take revenge upon uh, upon, uh, Judah. Uh, the Edomites were also uh, related by blood to the Jews. They were the descendants of Esau, as the brother of, of Jacob. And uh, their sin here following Babylon's uh, defeat and invasion of Judah, Edom used it as an opportunity, again, just to take vengeance upon uh, Judah. And the Lord took a, 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 a look at that, and He took note of it. And it displeased him. We have a, a saying in our culture, uh, don't kick a man when he's down. Uh, it always reflects badly on a person who will kick a man uh, when, when he is, is down. Take advantage of them when they're uh, defenseless, in a defenseless position. Uh, it, it, Judah was in a defenseless position because of God's judgment uh, upon them. And uh, it was not the time for anyone else to come in. This was a holy thing that God was doing, even in chasing His people. And, and it wasn't to be taken advantage of by, uh, by pagans or by anyone. And, uh, and so when we look at something, sometimes you'll see a video that's going around with like on the news, where if you go online or something, and then here's this thing and somebody's been you know, blindsided and knocked out, and then they kick them in the face three times before they leave and all, and, and we're mortified by it, that another, a human being could do that to another human being. 
and uh, how much more in the eyes of God. And so God said that he would judge them as a result of it, and as they had done to Judah, God would do to them uh, as, uh, as well. And the judgment would come the entire length of the land, and, and that prophecy came to pass uh, as well. And then here in, in verse uh, 15, uh, thus says the, the Lord God, because the Philistines uh, dealt uh, vengefully and took vengeance. So we get this vengeance idea, don't we? Uh, with a spiteful heart. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want vengeance being meted out upon me at any time, but you had a spiteful heart to it. So this is a really, really bad scene. And, uh, and, they, and this vengeance and the spiteful heart had a, a single goal uh, to destroy uh, uh, Israel, to destroy the Jews because of the old uh, hatred. And so this is their sin, uh, meeting vengeance out upon the Jewish people and doing so out of a, spi a spiteful heart. And, uh, and, to, and all of it coming, this desire to destroy the Jews, coming out of an old uh, uh, hatred. And so this, uh, the, the long history that the Bible has of, of the conflict and the, the, uh, between Israel and the Philistines, and, uh, and because of that long conflict of wrongdoing, they felt uh, here they used this time of Judah's vulnerability to take vengeance upon them. The problem with the Philistines taking vengeance upon uh, Judah is that God did not judge Judah. God did not humble Judah so that someone could come in and take advantage of the situation for themselves. Again, he judged them and he chastened them out of uh, righteousness, out of a holy zeal uh, uh, for their very good, as hard as it was. And, uh, and he didn't, certainly didn't do it to make them vulnerable so their enemies would now come in and try and, and take advantage of the situation uh, for their purposes. And so God noticed it and he didn't like it. And so he proceeded to, uh, to judge them. And so you've got the because in verse 15 and then the therefore uh, that, that comes, uh, the judgment that follows in verse 16. Thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. And I will execute great vengeance on them uh, with furious rebukes, and they shall, they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. So God says, you like the vengeance game? <laughs> uh, I can do it better than you. And, uh, and, and yours is wicked and carnal, and uh, mine is holy, uh, but I know how to, to meet it out. And, uh, and this prophecy uh, came to pass exactly as, uh, as Ezekiel had, had prophesied concerning the Philistines. They would be judged at the hands of, of the Babylonians uh, as well. You, you see, the, uh, the Cherethites are mentioned there. In uh, verse 16, you might remember them. They were a particularly fierce tribe among the Philistines. See, this is fierce in the middle of fierce. And uh, 
But you, you may remember that King David, when he uh, became king and, and uh, he put up kind of a personal bodyguard around uh, himself, he took uh, men from among the Cherethites and from the Pelethites to be that uh, personal uh, bodyguard. When, when the Lord says in terms of his destruction uh, of the Philistines, it's interesting to realize historically uh, that the Philistines ultimately disappeared as a nation. Uh, during that kind of 400-year period between the Old Testament and uh, the beginning of the New Testament. And that judgment was the beginning of them uh, disappearing. Uh, the, the Philistines and the Palestinians, those are two entirely different groups of people. So never get confused when you're uh, watching the news about the Palestinians today that somehow these are the ancient Philistines. They're not. These are two entirely uh, different groups of people. I think that what uh, is important to look at related to the Philistines here in terms of a, a very important application for our lives is to be careful, as he describes there in, uh, in verse 15, to be careful and to beware of an old hatred. Uh, God calls the same thing a little bit later uh, in, in uh, chapter 35 of the book. He describes it as an ancient bitterness. And I really like that phrase, an ancient bitterness. And an ancient bitterness is that bitterness that can live in our lives toward those who have done wrong to us, and it can live in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds for a very long time. Uh, bitterness as the shelf life of a Twinkie. And Twinkies never grow old. Those end-of-the-world end movies, if you ever get into a store, just go straight to the Twinkies. They will be undamaged. There's so many chemicals in those things that uh, they, they can't be. And, and bitterness is like that. And if we hold bitterness in our hearts towards uh, others, then what inevitably happens is that bitterness is always probing, always longing for revenge. It's always looking for an opportunity for revenge. It's always waiting for the other person to come into a place of comparative weakness when I can now then out of bitterness and vengeance jump, in, jump into the situation and take my vengeance out uh, upon them. And so, but the problem is, is that when that opportunity for vengeance uh, comes, uh, it, uh, the uh, vengeance and the old hatred, the bitterness, will almost always guarantee that I will overstep myself in that vengeance. And I will uh, commit a greater wrong in the eyes of God toward the person under the motivation of vengeance and bitterness than ever what they did to produce that uh, within me. And then I'll bring God's judgment uh, upon myself. And this is why we have to be very, very careful with holding bitterness in our hearts uh, toward other people, uh, as opposed to when a person does our wrong, a wrong to us, going to them uh, in the control of the Holy Spirit, uh, confronting them with a wrong that was done to let them know uh, so they're not guessing uh, about that. And then and trusting that situation then for the Lord to address and, and the perfection of His understanding of the situation, His love for you, and, uh, and, and to leave it with Him and let Him take care of it. 
And when we uh, choose to commit uh, vengeance uh, to the Lord and say, Lord, I I, I don't want to hold this in my heart. They talk about bitterness. The old saying is what? It's it's like uh, bitterness and unforgiveness. uh, Drinking poison in the hope it'll kill the other person. It never works. It never, ever works. And, and, and so to look and to say, Lord, I have spoken my mind here on this situation to the person. I've made them know what they have done here. And then when there isn't resolution, sometimes there is. When there isn't resolution and they're hostile toward, you leave it to the Lord and say, Lord, I know you love me. I know I don't have to explain anything to you about this situation, and I'm going to leave it with you. And to leave something with God is not to do nothing in the situation. It is to do the most powerful thing we can ever do in that situation, and that is to leave it uh, with God Himself. The writer of the book of Hebrews uh, says, looking carefully, uh, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness, it sits, it sits, it sits, it sits, and, and then... Uh, and ultimately, it doesn't just defile us, it defiles uh, everyone we come into contact with it, it, as well. Uh, Paul, we've already been in this recently in the book of, of Romans, and so I'm going to read you a, a handful of verses here, but I'm going to ask you to listen as if you've never heard it before. You ready? As Paul writes and he says, Repay no one evil for evil. You think Paul didn't? couldn't have been poisoned by bitterness. I, I mean, enough happened to him in, in a month in his ministry uh, to jade him towards Christians and religious people in the world uh, for life, let alone serving the Lord for decades. He said, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard, regard for good things in the sight of men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's the danger of becoming overcome by evil. In an ancient hatred that I'm holding on to, days or weeks or months or years or decades later is an indication I've been overcome by evil. And if I keep it in my heart, it will explode forth someday, and it will come forth at the worst time. I, will, I and you, will, we, will, oh, we will go beyond what they ever did to us, and, and it will displease the Lord, and, and He will be forced then to to uh, judge us. The Lord says, I mean, God's warning is, vengeance is mine, and His, his promise is, I will repay. And so as we close this uh, Bible study here tonight, just to ask in, in the privacy of our own heart uh, this evening, uh, do you have an ancient bitterness? I'm just going to give you, don't shut up, please, but I mean, I, I just want... There is so much, this is such a fallen world, there is so much cause for bitterness. 
and in, in relationships that go back to childhood, relationships in terms of marriages, in terms of relatives, in terms of schoolmates, in terms of uh, bosses, just anywhere you want to go. And if there's just something that is in your heart tonight, my heart tonight, an ancient bitterness, just this deep, settled desire for revenge against someone, then that's something that we need to turn over uh, to the Lord uh, tonight. And uh, because it's not going to harm anyone else, not ultimately. It will harm us, has great potential to bring tremendous problems and regret into our own lives. And not only to get into trouble with other people, but the one person we do not want to be on the wrong side of it, and that is God Himself. So we sit here tonight, and there's something where you say, boy, if I got the upper hand in this situation or in this person's life, this is what I would do to them. And if I ever get that opportunity, and I mean, and it sits there, how, how much time afterwards, uh, in the light of what, what Ezekiel said concerning the Philistines, it is such a danger to you. Because life has all of its ups and its downs. Nobody stays up all of the time. Nobody gets to keep a, a, a boot on, on our neck. Uh, throughout an entire lifetime. The opportunity will come. You'll get the upper hand one day. And if that ancient, that ancient hatred is alive, uh, you'll overstep as sure as the Philistines did with, 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 uh, with uh, Judah. And I don't say just you. I speak to my own heart as well here tonight. We all know how it just broods there. It sits there. It waits but instead it has to be given to God. God, I give that situation to you. You say that vengeance is yours. It's only, you're the only one that is safe to handle that and that you will repay. And Lord, to, tonight, at this point forward, that's enough for me. I will give it to you because I know myself well enough. Number one, to honor you. But I know myself well enough that vengeance cannot be entrusted to me because I will do terrible things under its influence. So I'd like the worship team to come forward now and I'm going to ask him, we'll go probably just about five minutes over in our service tonight, ask him to lead us in a couple of songs and just allow these issues as we see the Ammonites with the aha and, and rejoicing over the downfall of, of someone else and these kind of things that are in our flesh and and to make sure that anything that gets exposed here tonight in these scriptures, that, that uh, we would have a chance to say, Lord, I see this is displeasing to you. I've made it something that I've learned to live with, and I see I can't do that. I'm going to entrust that to you tonight. And the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, He'll meet with us right where, right where we're seated, and we'll leave uh, tonight being people who are uh, safe, uh, safe for others and safe for ourselves, and, and God's witness being... Uh, the, our Christian witness being safe as a result.